The following audio content is a talk from Tuesday Evening Worship, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash young adults. Hey, my name is John, by the way. If you're new here, I would love to, to meet you afterwards. I'd love to say hi. Please come up and introduce yourself. Uh, two things before we get going I want to just highlight and invite you into. The first is Kairos. I haven't talked about Kairos a lot. I've talked about it quite a bit last year. But it is a group uh, of businessmen and women that meet together to encourage each other as far as engaging their faith and the places they work. It meets right downtown. Uh, I'm going this Friday. And the, the topic is particularly applicable for right now. It's going to be someone talking around uh, what does faith have to do with career transition. And uh, I know there's at least one person in here who is facing career transition. And uh, maybe you are too. Maybe you're even wondering what's next, what's coming up. Um, it would be a great opportunity to network, to get to know some folks. The other thing I want to let you know about is the table. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. It's on Sunday night at 5 o'clock right downstairs. Uh, great opportunity to kind of get together and dialogue in a smaller venue before you head off into worship. Dave's been doing a great job. Uh, Dave Rohr, he's our pastor of worship here, and he's been engaging with a, a group called Cake, uh, a group that was popular about five years ago or so. Um, because they ask really great questions. And this week he's going to be talking about, you know, what the heck does God want? He'll be kind of engaging that. The week after that, we're going to have um, a gentleman who was born in Iran, who is uh, just finished at Princeton, is seeking uh, a call into ministry. And he is going to be talking about what does it mean to come alongside Muslim neighbors? How can we love them, connect with them, understand with them, and even uh, share Christ with them in a way that makes sense, in a way that connects? Uh, we're going to be spending some time as well, right after the election, uh, thinking, where do we find unity in, in what is going to be, for sure, a divisive uh, election? And then we're going to be looking uh, at some of the challenges that are out there and kind of in, in literature right now. There's a number of books that have been read that have just been uh, ripping the whole idea of religion, that religion is toxic. It's sort of, some people have called it a new atheism. Religion is toxic. If there is a God, God is certainly not good. Well, how do we how do we talk with how do we engage that in a conversation again that leads somewhere? So I, I invite you to come to those things. That's five o'clock um, uh, on Sunday nights. Uh, well, we are in a in a uh, series on the life of David called Running at Giants, and we are in a, a two weeks where we're looking at this this place where David finds himself essentially out in the wilderness. He's been driven from his country. He's out in the badlands. Last week, Dave talked about. Uh, what does it mean to thrive when you're out in the wilderness? And a couple of the things that he shared, he shared a number of points. How do you, like, for instance, like David, not just become vicious when you have somebody vicious coming after you? How is it that David, again and again, spared the life of Saul, the king who was out to kill him, when Saul was handed into David's hands? David had been sort of set aside as the next king. It was sort of his right. Nobody would have faulted him, and yet David seems to take a higher road. How does he do that? Why does he do that? One of the things he talked about is that David uh, very clearly keeps at the forefront of his mind that God is God. And then he, out of that, he operates out of principle over emotion. He doesn't let his emotions sort of run things. Well, we're going to continue uh, looking at this period in David's life in which he is sort of far from home. And it, he is almost out. I mean, he is about to be uh, a crowned king pretty soon. Uh, but before he does that, there are some real challenging things that he is going to have to face. And the question for us, we could go, yeah, it's great to know that, okay, here's the things in which I, you know, take the high road. 
in challenging situations. But what about if I took God off the throne? What if, what if God is not God? I, in fact, I put myself on the throne. What, what if I chose emotion over principle? It's nice to know, to do, you know, what to avoid kind of the, the bad stuff and how to, you know, survive and thrive. But what happens if I already screwed up? It's a good question because for many of us, to one degree or another, as much as we would like to sort of get ahead of the curve, we often find ourselves in these places where we feel like life is a mess. And so what do we do in that spot? We're going to look at that tonight. Well, when it comes to um, manners, especially when it comes to uh, things on the road, my wife takes the cake. Some of you guys got to meet my wife briefly. Uh, she was kind of here and there uh, this weekend up at the retreat. Uh, she would love to be here more, but often she's got to be home with our boys. But uh, my wife, if you got to know her, is is a really wonderful, kind, joyful person. It's one of the reasons why I married her, because I need someone to cheer me up. Sometimes I get grumpy. And uh, she is just unbelievably full of joy. Well, it comes to manner. She is, I mean, she is about the perfect sort of driver's ed student you can imagine. I mean, it's 10 and 2. It's like three car lengths ahead. It's drive slow. It's let everyone in. I mean, it just drives me crazy, actually. <laughs> and I know I drive her crazy. She's always like, <gasps> I'm like, what? I'm not a bad driver, which uh, has been argued uh, by many people. But uh, she, the only time she really gets kind of enraged is when, you know, she sees other people not being essentially polite on the road. Because just politeness and kindness really is what she is about. I used to have to drive out of Vancouver, B.C. No offense to Canadian drivers uh, in here. But, man, they are not necessarily very polite. Polite people, on the whole, not nice drivers, at least in Vancouver. And Shannon would get so enraged. Well, we were... Um, Kind of midway through uh, graduate school, I was at, went to Regent Colleges in Vancouver, B.C., and we had saved up, we kind of put aside that we wanted to go on a big trip. We wanted to go to Italy. We had been thinking about having kids, and we thought before that happens, kind of we're at the end of schooling, we're going to celebrate. So we're going to go on this trip. We, we've always wanted to go to Italy. We spent some time uh, in, in England as well with some friends, but we went and we, we spent a bunch of time in Tuscany. We stayed at one place in particular was Siena, and we actually stayed out on the kind of out at what they call agaturismos, which is you get to stay actually at a vineyard. I mean, it's, I mean, it's really cool. At least Americans think it's really cool. You're out there, and uh, we stayed at this place. I mean, it was great. I mean, I, I went down one night, and I, I uh, came back up, and they told Shannon, they're giving out free wine. It's awesome. <laughs> there was a, a gal, there was a dinner going on, and she's like, you got to sample this, you got to sample this, you got to sample this, and I'm just loving it. Shannon wasn't so happy, though, because we found out a week before we left that she was pregnant. Oh, yeah, wine off the list. She loves red wine. Uh, let's see, meats, cheeses, disgusting. She wanted to throw up. It, she was tired all the time. It was, uh, first trimester of pregnancy is usually pretty rough, and it was really rough for Shane. You don't want to be traveling, okay? We went to McDonald's in Siena. It was disgusting. But that's all that we could do. Well, well one day we went biking. And we, we were staying out of town outside of Siena. Siena is this gorgeous, uh, it's still very medieval. It's just like the way it was hundreds of years ago. It's kind of this little circular city. We decided we're going to ride in. We're going to ride our bikes, you know, ride into town. It'll be great. Well, we just got lost. We're going all over the place. Every time we tried to make it, uh, like we tried to go towards town, it felt like it took us away from town. And it, we were just getting enraged. Well, finally, we were just below town. The, the city of Siena is on a hill. We're just below town. But in between us is this huge highway. 
And uh, we thought, okay, there's no way we're going to get across this without kind of being kind of a, a bad frogger joke. We're just going to get squished. So we went up, and we finally found a crosswalk. And I think there was actually some lights that were flashing, you know, to say, hey, slow down, crosswalk. So we're waiting at the crosswalk. Well, not to stereotype Italian drivers, but they might be worse than me. Okay, they're zooming by as fast as they can, and we're waiting there, and nobody's stopping. Now, we're frustrated, we're tired, we're trying to go get something to eat, and every time we tried to step out, they just kept zooming. I mean, we stepped out, and they almost, we almost got hit, so we jumped back. It's, we're at a crosswalk. I mean, come on, what's the deal? So here we are, we're getting frustrated. Finally, Shannon steps out, and, uh, you know, jumps back because she almost got hit, and she, you could just see her, she starts, she starts kind of fuming a little bit. And I was about to see a side of Shannon that I had never seen before. (laughs) Except when we traveled in Italy. There was a couple instances. At some point, suddenly she just decides, I'm going to leap out right in front. And she just walks out in front of cars. Cars start slamming on their brakes and sliding. People start honking. And I'm thinking, whoa, baby on board. Come on. Oh, my gosh. What are you doing? Well, what does Shannon do? She doesn't jump back. Somehow she gets some fire from somewhere and she starts getting right in the faces of the cars that are stopped right in front of her and she's not only like kind of just going making her way across really quick she's stopped she's got her hand on the cars and she's yelling (laughs) at the drivers i'm gonna let your imaginations go because she's sharing she's sharing some choice words that are pretty much internationally known and she's like stop in the drivers and she's yelling at all the whole way across and so i'm just like oh Oh my gosh, so what, what is, you know, the man of the house to do but to tuck my tail between my legs and, sorry, 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 sorry. Oh, it was awesome. I mean, she just unleashed on them. They're honking, she's yelling. I mean, I don't know. It was, maybe it was a good Italian experience. Well, we got to the other side and we kind of just had this moment and suddenly I just was like, what just happened? That was amazing. And we, we had a good laugh about it, and, and it's just this wonderful moment in which all of Shannon's polite, kind principles got thrown out the door in this wild rage of hormones, of frustration, of hunger, of crazy drivers in a, in a way that made her say, we gotta take, we gotta do something, we gotta make something happen, we gotta get across, and, and we got across for sure, but maybe not in a way that Shannon, and I totally asked permission, by the way, to tell the story. We, we laugh about it all the time. Um, in a way that maybe Shannon wouldn't have been kind of her ideal. Well, tonight we're going to find that David is going to find himself in a mess that at least at partly has to do with his own choosing, his own decision. And the lessons that we need to learn are this, as we look through this, that, that when we think about our, our spiritual growth, when we think about our life moving through this world, it is not about always avoiding messes. That if somehow we can get life perfect, we're going to be okay. But it more has to do with what are we going to do when we find ourselves in the mess? How are we going to respond to the opportunities that are before us? How will we move through it? Well, let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump into uh, our text in, in 1 Samuel uh, 27. Lord, I, I thank you for this dynamic story that um, those who um, have grown up as Christians uh, look to uh, as amazing, and I, I just think of a conversation I had the other night of those who still are wondering what about the Bible, but still are captured by these stories because there's something about them. There's something about them that feel honest and real. There's something about them that seem to, to point to something else. Lord, I pray that 
Uh, that same spirit that inspired these stories of the life of David to be written so long ago would bring these words to life tonight into our hearts. Lord, that we might learn what it means to be able to move from a place um, of feeling like our world's caving into a place of, of thriving, not just surviving. Lord, guide us, uh, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, First Samuel chapter 27, and we're actually going to kick back up into 26 a little bit. And what we want to do is just a little bit of context. Basically, there was a number of stories, and Dave chose one of them, of of, uh, David sparing Saul's life. And here's another one. And we read this, that David essentially has an opportunity to kill. He's able to take the, the king's spear. He has an opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't. So he says, hey, look, here's your spear. I had the opportunity to drive, basically drive it through your neck, but I didn't. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed as surely as I valued your life. So may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. Right? Hey, God is God. God is on the throne. I'm going to operate out of principle over emotion. David is riding high. David is sort of at the pinnacle of this point where he has again and again showed that God is faithful and he has operated out of that. He is in the wilderness and yet he's thriving. But, and you know you're in troubles when you see buts. <laughs> More than one way. But... <laughs> Sorry, that was my own private joke. Um, Chapter 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing that I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. And then if you have your Bible, you can continue reading on with me. So David and his 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Achish is the king of the Philistines. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned for me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in a royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag, and it belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. Now David and his men went and raided the, basically the tribes to the south, the Geshurites, the, the Gizrites, and the Amalekites. And essentially he raids, the, he raids these, these, kinda, these nomadic peoples to the south. Whenever David attacked the area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, but took sheep, cattle, and donkeys, and camels, and clothes, and then he returned. When Achish would ask, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. Essentially, he says, I'm going into kind of the the, the southern portions of Israel. Again, we read, and this is where you, you know, when we're looking at Hebrew text, we need to pay attention when we hear something again. We we got it, it should raise alarm bells. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought. They might inform on us and say, this is what David did, and such was the practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory, Achish. 
trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. Essentially what he does is he, said, he, he tells this Philistine king, I'm going, I'm raiding, I'm kind of on the far outside kind of territory of the Philistines. I'm sort of right on the border. And what I'm doing is I'm doing, I'm raiding into Judah, I'm raiding into my own people, into, into the nation of Israel. But we're really what he's doing is he's raiding these other peoples that are, they're, you know, they're not necessarily allies, but they're not really enemies of the Philistines. But he's kind of raiding down south. And then he's coming back and he's bringing all this, all this, uh, plunder and tribute to this king and getting rich in the meantime. But can you guys see the, the difference just in a couple of verses? We start in 26 where David says pretty boldly, as surely as I valued your life today, so the Lord will value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Man, what a great spiritual thing to say. And yet, right at the very beginning of chapter 27, we see this about face where David thought to himself, one of these days, I, you got to pay attention to the little things like this, pronouns, I will be just destroyed by the hand of Saul. And the best thing that I can do, well, David sets himself out, whether he's tired, whether he, he just feels like he, he, he needs some sense of safety, even though God has delivered him again and again and again. The best thing that I can do is go over to our sworn enemies. The best thing that I can do is swear allegiance to a, a foreign king. The, the king basic, basically of where Goliath came from, which is ironic. The king of where Goliath came from that he had defeated already. The best thing that I can do is raid and massacre tribes to the south. Not because I'm told to, not because they had attacked us, not because there's a sense of divine judgment, even though that still makes it brutal to, to buy into and to understand. Basically, I'm just going to raid because it's going to make me rich and it's going to ingratiate myself to this king. The best I can do is to live a lie. The best I can do is switch alliances. And it pays off well for him. He lives well. He all... In the, in the preceding chapters between 27 and 30, he almost ends up going against his own countrymen, but is saved from that. David finds himself at a place where he's going, man, I guess I'm going to have to take things into control of myself. He, if you were here last week, poor Colby, sitting up on the chair the whole time. Man, he just yanks God off the chair and puts himself up there and says, the best I can do is become basically a traitor, a marauder, who's going around and raiding others to enrich myself. That's the best thing that I can do. I mean, it is what it is. That's, that's the world we live in, right? Well, what do, you, what do you do with this? Commentators have done a couple of things. Eugene Peterson uh, brings this out in his reflections, which are great, by the way, if you, wanna, if you want something for your own devotional life. Um, he says, Two things have happened essentially. On one hand, you kind of have, you have kind of moralizers that look on this, and, and rightfully so, say, you know, David blew it. He's the anointed one. He's supposed to be leading. He's supposed to be special. And here he is just essentially going on and kind of giving into this culture that Israel was supposed to be totally against, a culture of brutality, a culture of viciousness, a culture where life doesn't mean that much. He goes over there and he says he basically kind of just degrades himself in a lot of ways. You're acting like a common mercenary. You're not, you're supposed to be special. You're supposed to be set apart. That's what Israel was supposed to be about. Testimony that there is something different, that there's a God who is different. And here he is acting just like the people he's supposed to be separate from. 
Okay, so yeah, David's bad guy. Okay, you got, you got David kind of moralizing David. Then you know, on the other side, you kind of have the, the secular approach. If you sort of look at this, maybe these are folks that maybe take this in more of kind of a, let's just look at this as kind of just ancient literature. Well, here you go. Man, it is what it is. That's the way life is. David's politically astute. He gets it. I mean, he, he knows how to work it. He knows how to turn a situation for his benefit and work his enemy. He knows how to, he knows how to get himself, uh, into a secure place. He knows how to, to work things to his advantage. I mean, a man's got to make a living, right? Well, he does it. David seems to be doing pretty well. But what Peterson draws out, which is what I, what I love, is that he says, you know, most of us actually live in this place. Most of us, it's not, it's not really that easy. Most of us live in this place where we, are, we feel stuck. Where we feel like we might be in a spot where we might have done something to maybe some bad decisions, but there's also a lot of things. I mean, David has been chased after by basically just a maniac. And what is a guy to do? But a lot of us feel like we're in this place. I don't really want to be here. It's, it's that space where I feel like all I can do is what's before me to survive. It's kind of, it's in between ego and outright sin and circumstances outside of our control. It's that space where emotion does actually rule the day and not necessarily principle. And yet when we do that, it actually pays off. It pays the bills. It pays the mortgage. Like we're able to, to survive. It's that place where we feel like the values and culture around us might be totally against what we know of Jesus. Might be totally against what we know about his kingdom and what Christians are supposed to be like. And yet, what are we supposed to do? When we benefit from it on one hand... We feel terrible about it on the other. It's, real, it's that place where we feel like we have no real choice in the matter. I mean, what else am I supposed to do? I feel terrible about it, and yet I know, man, the place where I work and live is about as unspiritual as it can be. And what happens, what is so devastating to our souls, is that we begin to kind of separate things out. We still might go to church, but we at church over here where we hear about nice stories and, you know, here's what I should be. And then here's the reality I live in in which I feel like, yeah, I might be complicit somewhat, but I don't really, I don't really know how to get out of it. And so we begin kind of segregating these things off. And we go, you know, Monday is a whole different story than Sunday. I'll, I'll come and I'll praise. And yet kind of my prayers end up kind of becoming feeble and weak because I just kind of say, well, you know, kind of is what it is. While I'm in church, I'll, I'll pray. But our our faith ends up drying up and becoming anemic because it actually is never challenged by anything. Man, I'd, I'd follow Jesus. There's a lot of things that would have to change, though. My circumstances would have to change. If only, if only this could change. Then, I, then I'd really follow Christ. Then I'd really push hard into this faith. Well, the question for us is not whether we sort of live a perfect life or whether we can stay out of the mess. The question is, what are we going to do when we find ourselves in the mess? When we find our lives feeding the machine, when our identity seems to come into question, we feel like it's getting stripped out from us. Where our lives feel like they are propped up by lies just to kind of keep us going. The question is not whether we totally stay out of that place. By God's grace, we will. But probably all of us, to one degree or another, are going to find ourselves in that place, in our lives, perhaps even right now. Now the difference between David and Saul, King Saul, is that David somehow is able to learn. 
he is somehow able to, to learn from the poor decisions that he makes. And this is a good example for us to not to kind of glorify David as being someone who is somehow just basically Jesus and doesn't make any wrong decisions. He makes plenty of wrong decisions, and this clearly is a wrong decision and a series of wrong decisions. He lives in the Philistine territory for, for over 16 months. The great tragedy of Saul, though, is he is shown again and again and again that you're going down the wrong path again and again. Saul, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And Saul continues to drive himself in the same direction, essentially saying, what else am I supposed to do? So he ends up having spending his time not really ruling as a king, but spending all of his energy trying to stamp out David, the one who would say to him, I would follow you. I would serve you. I would fight for you. Jonathan says this to his dad, what are you doing chasing this guy? Saul ends up running just saying, well, what else am I supposed to do? I, I, feel, I feel threatened. The thing about David is that he's able to, to wake up and to see an opportunity and to change. Well, there is an opportunity that comes up in chapter 30 where we read this. That David had been out, he'd been called out to go up against the, the Israelite army. It's a weird, I mean, it's a tense situation. It's kind of like a, this great sort of uh, suspense thriller if you were to make a movie out of it. He gets called up to potentially fight against Saul, which he's basically said, I'm not going to do. I won't kill Saul. And at the last minute, basically all the other Philistine commanders go, what is this guy doing here? He's going to turn off at the last minute. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. So he, they uh, basically have a three-day journey back to the town or city of Ziklag where they had been staying. David and his men reached Ziklag. And on the third... On the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev, which essentially is kind of southern region of Ziklag, and they had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive, probably as slaves. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. See, right? David had been in this place where his morals had slipped and God had become absent. He sort of dropped into what was safe. He moved here because this is a safe place. But now, all of a sudden, this, this great plan of his, this great construct for his life came crashing down in on him. And he has this choice. He has an opportunity. Which I would say to a lot of you guys, when stuff like this happens, when your world begins to start crashing in, when things start going wrong, it's not to say that you're to blame for it. And yet there is an opportunity there. It's an opportunity either like Saul to keep kind of driving down the same road and to deaden your soul more and more and more if indeed you are going down the wrong road. Or it's an opportunity for you to see God perhaps in a new way like you've never seen him before. To actually see God speak into darkness that you thought was too dark for church to speak into. For the nice Sunday service that you go to, you think that doesn't really have anything to do with the real life realities that you deal with on Monday. These kinds of things are opportunities to wake up, to see things like the story of the prodigal son. That, that picture in the very back there of a waking up is the story of the prodigal son, which many of you will probably know. It's found in Luke, where he essentially basically wishes his dad dead, takes his inheritance, runs away, wastes his life with it, and then wakes up in a pig slop, realizing, man, these pigs are fed, these pigs are, are these pigs are fed better than I am, and I, I might as well go home and at least be a, a servant. He wakes up and he changes direction. Well, 
opportunities like this, you could either kind of change direction, which is what we're going to see David do, or, or you could drive further. His men essentially turn on him and say, out of rage, out of, out of this grief, they, they turn on him and they said, you know, this is your stupid idea that we're here in the first place. You're the one to blame for this. We're going to stone you. We're going to kill you. We can look around and look for the person who is to blame. We're going to see who, who it is that has threatened our safety, who it is that we can write off, who it is that can, that can take the blame for the situation we're in. So what, what do you like when that happens? What do you like when stuff crashes in? Is that, is that happening to you even right now? What happens when difficulty comes your way, when you feel like you end up getting think hard things coming, you might even feel persecuted? Is your first reaction to lash out? Do you spend a lot of your time focusing on, on the one that I can get rid of, the one that I can blame, the one that I can kill, the one that is taking away from me the sense of stability that may be right or maybe isn't right? Perhaps we might be able to choose a better way if that's true for us. We might be able to choose the way for da- as David does, where he evaluates what he's been resting in it and chooses kind of a better way in the, in the very midst of a mess. And so as we kind of look at the rest of the chapter, we're going to look at sort of three things that we can learn about moving through uh, the, mess, the messes we find ourselves in. The first thing is this, is that we read that David strengthened himself in the Lord. He's at the very sort of bottom, he's kind of at the bottom of the pit, greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him, each one bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But, here's a good but, but we begin to see a change. David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue the raiding party and will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So David and the 600 men um, with him set out uh, and came to the Basor Ravine. The first thing we need to think, learn about, what do we do when we're stuck in the mess? And when we begin to have this opportunity to evaluate where we're at, is to begin, like David does, by strengthening ourselves in the Lord. David personally seeks to remember what is true about him. What is his identity? Who, who, how is it that he has acted? Who is he supposed to be? What does God have to say into all of this? What, it, what have I been called to? Certainly for David, he is called to a lot more than being simply just a mercenary, profiteering off of other people. What am I called to? He goes deep in himself. And in that place, then he goes and he seeks godly counsel. What should I do? Essentially, he goes to a pastor, a priest. He says, what should I do? I I want someone I can trust to come alongside me, to pray with me, to help me form a plan on on what is next. And it's in that place that he finds a sense of discernment to kind of move into, uh, to come up with with an action plan, essentially. And let me me say this. Let me just pause this. That I would love, one of the things that I love, there's a couple of things that I love. One of them is that I love to visit people where they work. Because I know that that is probably the, the main place where it is most difficult to work out your faith. And I would love to come and visit you where you work. Now, I promise I won't come in and start yelling, Jesus, and everyone bow down and we're going to have an altar call. I promise. But I would love to be able to come and see where you work because I know that our places of work are difficult places. There are places where 
black and white distinctions that seem easy to talk about on a Tuesday night or a Sunday break down into gray. That, it, that there are places in which it is really difficult to, to somehow stand up and talk about your faith, even though we might talk about, hey, that's a good thing to do on, on a Sunday. There are difficult places where there might be decisions you have to make in which you go, I have to make between bad decision and worse decision. Not good decision, not right decision, wrong decision. Bad decision and worse decision. I might have to decide, who am I going to lay off? Tell me, what's, tell me what's godly about that. And it's into that place that I would love to be able to come alongside you and be able to pray for you. And I think, and the same goes with Amber and Thad. I would love to be able to come alongside, not to tell you how to do your job, but to simply pray for you and affirm your, the place where you're at. Well, the second thing that we see is that David comes up. And he moves forward boldly and hopefully. Now what's interesting is that he actually kind of injects hope in this whole situation. What he sees around him, if he simply were to respond to what kind of peer pressure, what he sees around him is, is let's find out like a scapegoat. We can skewer and we can run up the pole. Okay, that's, that's what he's being, that's what he's being shown. These guys that he is taking care of time after time after time are now ready to stone him. But he comes up with a plan, and a plan to move forward, a plan to rescue. It's interesting. He says, hey, we're going to go out, we're going to rescue. We're not going to just seek vengeance. We're going to rescue. He says, there's hope here. And he begins to move forward boldly in that. I think it's so interesting that so often when we find ourselves in difficult situations, we can burn so much energy. And I, I talked about this just a minute ago. On things we can't control, we can burn so much energy just griping and bitching about the people that we think are on our way. Here's what's wrong. Here's the situation that's wrong. Here's the person that's wrong. Instead of us actually moving forward with a sense of hope, with a sense of here's a positive solution to, to the, what is wrong. This doesn't mean that we shy away from things. This doesn't mean that we kind of turn a blind eye if there's something that is truly wrong, if someone is truly being destructive. We don't do that, but we can spend so much time just griping about. Here's the problem. Where, here, where's the scapegoat? But David, actually, after coming along, kind of rooting down in who God has made him to be, and realizing that it's not basically on his kind of sharp wit and the lies that he can do, that he, his strength is there, he roots down, he begins to move forward with a, a plan that actually moves people forward with a sense of hope. And as he does that, he remembers his identity. It's interesting that he's going along, essentially... He, he and his men have been pretty brutal. But as they go along, they find an Egyptian in a field. Verse 11. And they brought him to David. And, and there they gave him water to drink and food to, eat, food, to, food to eat. And David asked him, to who do you belong and where do you come from? And essentially he says, I'm an Egyptian who just was cast aside. I couldn't keep up. But I was just cast aside by Amalekite masters. And, I, and here I am. David remembers who he is, and who he is is he's not brutal, he's not vicious. I mean, this is a brutal era that we have to we have to kind of do some, some work on between now and then. This is a brutal era, but David remembers, I have been shown hospitality when I was an outcast, when I fell behind. There is a code of hospitality in that part of the world in which you have to ex- you extend it to someone who is in need, and he remembers who he is, not the brutal man amongst the brutal people that he was, He remembers who God has made him to be and who Israelites are called to be. He shows him hospitality and it is this guy that actually gives him the information he needs to be able to find this raiding party. And when he does, he's able to totally rout the raiders and recover everything. Everything, we are told. He recovers everything. 
Now you think the story's done, but the real battle actually is yet to, to be won. This is the this is the first part of it. Because we read, we go on, we read verse twenty. If you're reading along, David recovers everything that the Amalekites had taken. He took all the flocks and the herds and all his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying, this is David's plunder. Now David, now David's at the top. Now David's the big stud. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and were left behind at Besor Ravine. Let me just back up here for a second. One of the things is they continue out. They come to this great ravine and, and he had men that had been, had been like running full bore for th- like three days before this. And then they just get exhausted with this. Now, somebody actually has to stay behind with the supplies. But what we read, though, is that they didn't, they didn't keep going because they were exhausted. So there are 200 men that were left back. And he comes back and he picks them up. They came out to meet, uh, they came out to meet David and the people with him. As, as David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David his followers said, because they do, did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed us over to the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that who went out to battle. All will share alike. And what it, the last thing that we need to know is we need to root ourselves in our identity. We need to move forward with something that is actually positive and redemptive. But we also, when victory comes our way, we need to think about, about engaging that or responding graciously and compassionately. David has every reason in the world to show these guys a lesson. These are the guys that wanted to stone him. These are the guys who were too weak to keep up. He has every right to sort of assert his authority. Nobody would question him if they go... I'm going to cast these guys, you guys aside. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to side here with the, the strong. Man, if I get the strong around me, then we can talk about, we can kind of shift some of the blame in which people want in my head. I'm going to, you got the weak guys over there. They're, they're really the problem. He has every opportunity to sort of puff himself up by, by making these guys, in a sense, some of the scapegoats, the problems. He's going to gather around himself all the strong ones. And yet he says, no. And this is where David's real leadership comes up. He has the opportunity to get affirmed, but he rejects it. He rightly takes them straight on. He says, you know, this is the Lord's victory. What do you, I mean, it's pretty pompous. Hey, we were the ones that went out there and we, we got all this stuff. They don't deserve any of it. What do you mean, we? You were ready to kill your leader. How is that going to get anybody back? You were, you were consumed with nothing but hate. How is that going to get your wives and children back? You, God gave you this Egyptian that told you exactly where they were going to be. How did you play a role in that? I mean, it's ridiculous. In fact, it's David, if anybody, that played a huge role in that. They actually had a, a very little role. And so for, for David, he, his last great victory here is that he is able to set the tone, to change the tone, to move beyond self-interest and brutality to generosity and compassion. To be able to say, I might be able to get away with sort of building myself up in my power by that. But if there's God gives me a sense of victory in the midst of the mess, in the midst of which I have been treated wrongly, I'm going to turn that around. I'm going to turn that upside down. This is the upside down stuff of the kingdom that you'll you hear sometimes. Is Jesus seems to say everything totally backwards. I'm going to turn this thing upside down. And what is going to rule the day is going to be generosity and grace 
and compassion. Now, we're all, in one degree or another, at places that are difficult. Some of you are in places that are difficult because you made a bad decision. Some of you guys probably uh, outright sin. And you're in a difficult, tough position. Some of you are in positions that are just difficult because it feels like you can't ever do what is right even if you wanted to do what is right. It doesn't matter. In some ways, it doesn't matter either way. The point is, what are we going to do in that situation? What are we going to do with the opportunity that is before us? We all live in the mess. If we try to live the sanitized life in which everything lines up right before we actually begin to lead, before we begin to do something, we will never do anything. Call and Response, that movie I mentioned um, that's been playing uh, a while ago, Cornell West is one of the key figures in that. And as Dr. West can only do, he talks about being in the funk. And I love it. I'm not even going to try. Okay, I'm not that cool. He talks about we're born into the funk. You can't escape the funk. Don't try to pretend like you, you don't know what the funk is about. We're all in the funk. But it's in the funk that God does his most amazing work. It is in the funk in which beauty and truth can come out in ways that you never thought possible, in part because it is the last place in the world that you could ever imagine that there would be beauty and grace and love. I love that from this instance, this incident, David's compassion and generosity becomes national policy. We read that David made this a statute that we're going to share, no matter kind of what role you play. We're going to, this statute became an ordinance in Israel from that day until this. That David's, what David learned in his place of, of failure, what David learned in, in his place of just the junk of life, as he began to, to move redemptively through, it became national policy. I don't know where you guys are at and what, what kind of influence you guys have, but as you guys begin to move in a way in which your identity is placed on something different than those around you, as you begin to, to move forward and provide positive solutions to where, wherever it is that you have to, have to influence in, as you are able to, to establish a, a culture of generosity, you might have the opportunity, just maybe, Perhaps even in something small to begin to change the culture of your company. Maybe for some of us to even change national policy. We're all called to be ministers. We're all called to leadership. And this is fundamentally about leadership. The question is, what are we going to do with the opportunities that are before us? We're going to kind of root ourselves tonight in a prayer that most of us have prayed, or at least who have heard of, uh, the Lord's Prayer, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And I just invite you, as we go through, we're going to apply this to wherever it is that you work. Sometimes I fear that we kind of we kind of cruise through a we kind of cruise through something like this on a on a Sunday, thinking, yeah, this is just one of those things you do in church, and yet this is a really simple prayer that actually speaks right into the everyday stuff that we have, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause uh, as we kind of read this together, but I invite you to read with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Take a moment. Take, hold on, take just a moment. And pray that for the places in which you work and the places that you live. 
the messy places, the gray places, the place where following Jesus is not easy. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's stop there. Pray that, that God would provide for the very thing that makes you anxious, that might make you make a a bad decision, that might make you compromise your values, might make you compromise who you are. Pray that God would provide for that. Pray that he would forgive those places in which you trespass against other people, in which you compromise your integrity. Pray for forgiveness as you actually are forgiving those who do the same. And pray that you would not be tempted to believe that the Father, your Father in heaven has abandoned you.